in the history of this church, this is the first time preaching where I've been more comfortable than you. It's an absolute first, because this is nice here. Charles Stanley gets away with this. I've seen it on TV. Now, I, um, I don't think I see anybody here that doesn't know what's going on with me, so, uh, uh, so I don't have to explain. But I have, uh, you know, I just couldn't get anybody to preach this, this week or next, so we'll see about it. So I thought, well, maybe we'll give it a try like this. And uh, and see if we can make it see if we can make it happen. I just couldn't get anybody this week. And I thought, well, God is sovereign, and maybe this is uh, you know we've been praying and so forth. And and uh, so anyway, I, but if I can't, if I just can't get through it, um, we'll do we'll do something else. I mean, I'll excuse myself. And uh, Teresa, you're on call. There'll be some more singing and. And praying and so forth, and we'll we'll um, we'll have worship. We won't cheat ourselves on worship, but uh, but I hope I can. I hope I can. I certainly have prayed that I could. Um, I've been. I won't. I won't say that I've. I've said this before, but it's not really true. That I've worked on this sermon. I've said that to people. I've worked on this sermon more than any sermon in my life. Just because I've been, but that's not really true because I haven't worked on it. Some of my notes here are very cursory and they're not very well, you know, they're just jotted down something and I haven't really fleshed it out like I would normally. Uh, but I have been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it and thinking about it and praying about it. And it's been, yeah, I've been, I've spent more time preparing this sermon. And I, and like I say, I've hoped and prayed that I can get through it because I, because I think it's important. And I think they're all important, but this one has really been in my craw for uh, some months. You know, everybody everybody wants to uh, live a life that is meaningful. Everybody wants it to count, you know. Um, I don't think I've ever known an atheist in personally in my life who didn't cheat on this point in my opinion and by and by cheating I mean they they want to live a life of meaning and purpose and they want it to count but the but the atheists that I've known at least I just you know to my own experience I don't they 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 want to have that meaning so they live their life as if it has meaning and it does they live their life as if it can count for something it can really count for something and it in a you know it's in a real way but their philosophical underpinning doesn't have they don't there's no reason for life to count you know we're all going to end up in the grave it's all going to come to nothing the you know the the universe is going to go on and the human race is going to be just be a nothing it's a, a, it came and it went and it didn't matter whether you ultimately it didn't matter if you're good or evil or if you loved your wife you didn't love your wife you're a good person not a good person you know none of it really matters it's just going to end up in nothing but they want to live their life as if it has Meaning, and it does, but they just and they have to live that way. It's just that they don't have any reason to live that way, other than their own human spirit made in the image of God demands that they live that way. The uh, Christians are different because everything we do, every our whole life relates to a, a God who is, who is eternal who exists forever, who was there before there was anything. It's, you know, it's, and, and it's, so there is, there is a meaning, but in individual, we, we want it to count. In my uh, convalescence, as it were, I've been reading about Isaiah. And just, and take him as a case example, as just an example of, of a person. Just think of Isaiah as a person for this week, and if I can do this next week, or if it's a later time, it will, I'm going to bring it up again. This sermon that I've been working on is, is split into two. Uh, Isaiah is considered the greatest writing prophet of the Old Testament era. And, that, and that's really, it's got to be true. And it's the messianic, it's good reason for that. It's the messianic prophecies. 
It's Isaiah's messi messianic. You know what I mean? The prophecies about Jesus, the, the coming Messiah. That's what, that's what does it. I mean, it's a big book, too. It's a, it's a big one of the more content there. But it's, it's the prophecies. I mean, Isaiah, who lived seven centuries before Jesus was born, recorded many, uh, perhaps even most, I haven't counted up, but most of the most striking, most clear, most compelling Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus of Nazareth as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who take, came to take away the sin of the world. You know, after the angelic revelations to Joseph and Mary uh, that, uh, you know, that the birth of the Savior is to come, you know, Ma Matthew adds this. Matthew writes, you know, the, the angel tells, jo tells Mary and the angel tells Joseph. It says, all this, this is Matthew, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, which prophet are you talking about, Matthew? Anybody want to guess? It's Isaiah. It's Isaiah 7.14. He's quoting Isaiah 7.14. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 says this Messiah will be born of a virgin. The virgin will be his child. Matthew, also under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he identifies uh, the baptizer, John the baptizer, with Isaiah's prophecy concerning Messiah's forerunner. In those days, John the Baptist, this is Matthew chapter 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the king, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, quoting Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. That's Matthew 3, 1 through 3. Here's what Matthew writes at 4, 12. Now when he, Jesus, I put in Jesus. Now when he, but we're talking about Jesus. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken of by the prophet, what's the next word? Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Matthew is saying, you know, Jesus, he heard this trouble with, with John, and he gets out of the danger area, the high danger area, and he goes up north to Galilee, where it's a lower Gentile area, it's a little safer, and he says, even that, even that withdrawal up into Galilee is a, uh, uh, was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Later on, the Pharisees' hatred of, of Jesus has kind of morphed into an actual plan to kill him. Matthew tells us this. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's Matthew 12, quoting Isaiah 42. The entire argument of Matthew uh, is that Jesus was and is the deliverer that God promised in the Old Testament. And the backbone of those Old Testament promises they reside in the prophecies of Isaiah. There really could not be the gospel of, according to Matthew without Isaiah. It, it's at least as we have it. In, in a way, Matthew, Matthew is a fulfillment side commentary on the book of Isaiah. 
in a way. And he quotes other, there, there are other uh, Old Testament authors quoted, you know, Zechariah figures large, and there are others, but the backbone of it is Isaiah. And, and while Matthew is the, is the gospel that's most Jewish in orientation, uh, you know, that's the one written to the Jews to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, it's, it's, you could make a similar case in a little bit lesser way for the other gospels as well. Uh, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Isaiah is quoted six times explicitly in Mark, six times in Luke, four times in John. And so what I'm getting at is that Isaiah's contribution to the Christian gospel and to what Bible scholars call salvation history, you know, how God brought about this plan of salvation, uh, is pretty amazing. His contribution to it. Uh, the, the gospel writers used his prophecies as a foundation for their proclamation that Jesus is Savior and Lord. You know, Isaiah, te Isaiah teased it up for them, and then uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially Matthew, they hit, hit it out of the park. And that's, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good uh, legacy, don't you think? That's a pretty good contribution to things, to the kingdom of God. I mean, don't you think that Isaiah, don't you think on that basis alone, Isaiah would have a pretty good shot at hearing that well done, thou good and faithful servant? That's quite a thing. I mean, that, that the Lord saw fit to use him. I know it's all grace, of course. Isaiah didn't think it up. It was given to him. But he was faithful. He recorded it. And, I, and, and the Lord found him useful for laying the foundation for this thing that was coming called the New Testament. He's, wow. That's a feather in your cap. That you say that's a life well lived. You know that's a, that that's a, a good job. But there's more than that. Because I believe Isaiah's impact extends to the savior himself, to Jesus's conception of himself, his identity, his calling. You know, I wonder if you've ever seriously grappled as a believer, if you've ever seriously grappled with this, with what it means to say that Jesus is both God and man, both human and divine. Now, I know, you know, there's that formula that people teach, and it's true, it's true. If he, if, he wasn't, if he wasn't human, he couldn't have died for the sins of man. If he wasn't divine, his sacrifice wouldn't have had infinite value. You know, there's that. But I wonder if you've ever thought about it you know, more deeply than that. You know, I, I believe that modern Christians have a much easier time of thinking of Jesus' um, deity than they do of his humanity. It's hard for us to think of him in his humanity uh, it, we're, we're so you know jesus jesus is the lord and Je you know we, we that's so strong we, we have a i think in our thinking uh jesus deity the fact that he's god eclipses his humanity in whole that we we just have a hard time thinking about it and and when we uh when we do we we just kind of come up short in the true and biblical portrayal of jesus as both god and man one of the questions that I've wrestled with over the years about this is how could Jesus experience the man Jesus, the person Jesus, how could he experience faith the way we do, uh, the way we have to as believers, as human beings? How could he, how could he ever have a struggle of faith? How could he grow in his faith? How, Hebrews tells us, says, says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
In other words, he can sympathize with us in our struggles because he's been there. He's experienced them all without sin. There's not a struggle you have as a human person that Jesus didn't face. But how could Jesus, God in human flesh, uh, experience faith and the struggles that, that come when our faith is challenged or when it's stretched or in anything, in anything like the way we mere mortals do? And I'll give you, for example, the Bible challenges me and you. Well, let's just talk about me, my favorite subject. <laughs> uh, the Bible challenges me to accept by faith that I am a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. The Bible says so clearly, right? The Bible challenges to believe in the same vein that I have died to sin. Romans 6 says, you must, so also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a command. It's a command to my faith. I, 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 I must believe this. But if you lived in my skin the way I do, you, you might not seem to yourself to be all that dead to sin sometimes. Or sometimes you not, might not feel like what this book calls you, a saint, a holy one of God. A new creation in which the old things have passed away. That's faith. That that's, stretches your faith, right? You read it and say, it's true. i got to believe it. But man, I, I preached a sermon here one time in which I asked for a show of hands right at the beginning. I said, raise your hand if you have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. Raise your hand if you've crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. A few hands, you know, a couple hands went up. Alligator arms, mostly. You know. <laughs> I remember one one of one of the alligator arms was uh, was Randy Sensabaugh sitting right over there. Randy Sensabaugh, if you remember Randy, he was a law a pastor of many many years. Uh, Shannon's grandma's husband in her widowhood, right? And uh, he raised his hand like that because he knew the verse. He, he, it sounded, he recognized it. He'd say, that's in the Bible. You know, so he raised his hand, but he, he didn't, uh, you know, but someone didn't want to raise a hand because who, what a presumptuous thing to say. I've crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. I said, well, you know, after the, the little bit of discomfort there, the, uh, I ask an easier, oh, sorry, let's ask an easier question. Who here belongs to Christ Jesus? And, and almost everybody raised their, raised their hand. Hi. No alligator arms on that one. Whoops. Wow. Losing weight. <laughs> no alligator arms on that one. Right? Who here, is, who here belongs to Christ Jesus? Every hand went up. Every hand went up. Well, here's the verse. Here's the verse. All those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And desires. Well, in other words, if you're in one category, you've got to be in the other one. It's one-to-one. -one. It's not some of those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with passions and desires. It's all of them. And at, and at the very core of this Christian life is, is believing what God's Word says about ourselves is right and true, and I, I have to embrace it. And that's, that's not easy sometimes, right? That stretches your faith, doesn't it? I, I don't know. How can it not stretch your faith? How do you get there to, to yeah, that's right. I have, I've died to sin. I've crucified the flesh as long as the passions and desires. How could Jesus ever have experienced a, a struggle of faith or a challenge of faith at least, like that? I mean, didn't he always, didn't he always know exactly 
who he was and what he was here to do? Didn't he know exactly? Uh, didn't, didn't, always, didn't he always just know that he came from heaven to destroy the works of the devil? Didn't he just, couldn't he just remember his experiences in heaven? Couldn't he just remember that? His experience of heaven before he came into the world, before his incarnation? How can God have faith or need to have faith? I mean, doesn't he just know? But Jesus is both divine and human, both God and man. And while it's a hard thing for us to think about, unless you are willing to believe that the baby Jesus lying in the Bethlehem manger was faking it, pretending not to understand everything that was going on around him and who was who and what was what. You know, pretending to not know how to talk, pretending not know, you know, pretending to be a, a, a baby just like any other baby you'd see. Unless you're willing, unless you say that he was faking it somehow, then you have to admit that somehow over the course of time, he came to realize who he was and is and what he came to do. And how that happened is largely hidden to us. We have that episode in the temple when he was 12 years old. When the boy Jesus did and said some things so unusual that indicated that he knew he had a special relationship with his heavenly father. As far as it goes. But it was out of the ordinary. He wasn't talking like that all the time. And then certainly at his baptism, by John, we see uh, of the full acceptance and committing of himself to his messianic work to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, which descended on him. His identity was confirmed by the voice from heaven and proclaimed, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Certainly you have a full embrace of it there. But how did Jesus get to that point? That self-awareness, that his identity and calling. We can speculate about it. But if we stick with what we know, if we stick with what the Bible, the clues the Bible gives us about it, well, what do we see? We see Jesus showing up at his hometown synagogue and offering an interpretation of a certain portion of Scripture that blows everyone away. This is where he was, this is where he grew up. These are people that knew him. He, he preached a sermon so powerful, they tried to throw him off a cliff right after it was over. That's how good it was. And why did they do that? They did that because they knew exactly what he was saying. They got what he was saying. Here it is. Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. You know, I imagine at that point people are saying, oh, that's Jesus. He's such a nice young man. Jesus is going to read the scriptures. Oh, that's nice. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a breathtaking interpretation. Because he's saying, I, Jesus, am the me in Isaiah chapter 61. I don't know how he read it, his intonation and everything, but because they, they got it, and the fact they wanted to kill him afterwards shows that they understood what he was saying. Here's, here's how they heard it. But no matter how Jesus read it, inflections and everything. Here's how they heard it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said, in other words, I am the anointed one. I'm the promised Messiah. I imagine at this point, this is where his siblings began to think he was off his nut. You know, this is where they began to think he's crazy. He's mad. But... Now we have an answer to the question, how could Jesus have experienced faith the way we have to experience faith? To believe, to see in the scriptures yourself described and believe it. How can Jesus know what it is to step out in faith? Which is at the core of the Christian life, isn't it? How can he know what that's like to step out in faith? Well, how about coming to the conviction that you're the Messiah because what you read in the Bible and going to your hometown church and making the proclamation in front of everybody who knew you and saw you growing up as a normal kid? Does Jesus know anything about the experience of reading the Word of God and it challenging and stretching his faith? Well, he sure does. Later on, when the baptizer's been arrested, John's kingdom expectations were not being met. John went wobbly on whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. And he sends word, because he thought the the kingdom's coming, and he's got arrested, he's in jail. This wasn't part of his expectations. And so he sends sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and they say, ask him, are you the one who is to come? In other words, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the the Savior? Are you the anointed one? Or shall we look for someone else? Did I get this wrong? Was I wrong when I said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world? Here's how Matthew tells us it went from there. Matthew 11. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, And the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now John would recognize those Old Testament, there's a lot of Old Testament quotations in there. John would recognize them more quickly than you and I would, but he's telling John that he's telling, uh, he's telling John that Here's your answer. I'm doing the things that what you and I call the Old Testament says Messiah would do. Now, do you know where in the Old Testament it says that Messiah will give sight to the blind? Can you guess? Isaiah. Make the lame to walk? Isaiah. Cleanse the untouchables? Isaiah. Make the deaf to hear, bring the dead to life, Isaiah, chapter 35 mostly, 61 as well, excuse me, they leave, he tells his disciples, or to the crowds it says, when you went out to see John, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind, man dressed in soft clothing, 
Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Ah, yes, I tell you, one is more than a prophet. This is the one above, about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Where do you suppose that is written of the, uh, of the forerunner? Isaiah. He says, it's not just me and Isaiah, it's that man too. Lest you think, lest you're diminished, he's diminished in your eyes because he has this moment of doubt and he sent men to ask me, you know, did I really have it right when I said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world? Don't think less of him. Don't think less of him. And so over, what do you see in the Gospels? The clues we have, these are just clues. But what you see is that over and over again, the man, Jesus, draws his sense of identity from the prophecies of Isaiah. Now, think about, think about Isaiah again. How's that for a significance in of Isaiah's life? How's that for a feather in your cap? How, how, how's that for making your mark? Leaving a dent. What the, the prophecies, his prophecies, they not only made it possible for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to be written as we have them, they not only laid the foundation for the whole New Testament, they shaped Messiah's self-conception. They're where, I, they're where the Messiah got the content for what he was, who he was and who he's about. But there's more, and I'm just going to bring up one more thing. And that's this, the astounding apologetic and evangelistic impact of one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible and that is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is astounding because it portrays Jesus so clearly, so obviously, it's a, and particularly in his trials and in his crucifixion. It's just, you read Isaiah 53, it's Jesus on the cross, obviously. But it's, it's 700 years before Jesus was born. And it's, yeah, that's where we read, Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We read that, and we see Jesus rejected by his own people, his own kindred. It's in Isaiah chapter 53 where we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then also, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And we see the biblical and Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement clearly and movingly described. Right? It's also in Isaiah 53 where we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we see, we read that, and we see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Could it be clear? I don't know how. Isaiah 53 is where we read, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And we're reminded of the taunts directed him as he hung on the cross. Let's see if God delivers him now. He saved himself. He saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. Come down from the cross. We'll believe in you. You remember that? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's in Isaiah 53 where we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. 
And whenever I read that, I see that Roman soldier. In my mind's eye, I see that Roman soldier piercing him in his side. See the piercing of the nails through his hands and his feet. He was pierced. Isn't it something? He says, pierced. Why does he use that pierced? Well, that's the word given to him. But it's pierced. How interesting. Jesus was pierced. It's in Isaiah 53. Where we read, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears of silence. So he opened his mouth. And we see Jesus standing there before his accusers. Don't you remember? His accusers are, you know, their pilot is astonished. He's, don't you hear all these things that are being said about you? And we know it's a lot of false testimony, a lot of lies that told. Don't you hear what they're saying? Don't you have anything to say? Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you sticking up for yourself here? Hmm. Then we read in Isaiah 53, they made his grave with the wicked. When you read that, what do you think of? Other than those two thieves, one on either side of Jesus, one on this side, one on that side. Yet with a rich man in his death. And we see Joseph of Arimathea who asked for the body of Jesus, asked for custody of the body of Jesus. He might give him a proper burial. It's a prophetic vision revealed and recorded by Isaiah seven centuries before the events described. It's just a transparently and obvious prophetic preview of Jesus of Nazareth dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, Isaiah 53 immediately became the cornerstone Old Testament passage for persuading Jewish people that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. Immediately, Isaiah 53 became John 3.16. The, you know, the, the, the passage that just tells it. You remember you, Acts, Acts chapter, uh, let's see, what is it? Acts 8. Um, the evangelist Philip is directed by the Spirit to approach the chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch and the court official of the Candace, right? You remember that? The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading. You know it, don't you? heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Where do you think that is? Isaiah chapter 53. Skipping out a couple verses here. Eudic said, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. In the early days of the church, when the church was almost exclusively a movement among Jewish people, Isaiah 53 is the cornerstone passage for presenting Jesus. When proven that Jesus was and is the Messiah from the Scriptures, which is a, at that time, that's what we'd call the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is the mother load, you know. It's where you start. Where you, if you don't start there, you've got to finish there. It's got to be in there. And in Jewish outreach, it's still the go-to passage. Mitch Glazer, 
uh, president of Chosen People Ministries, I think is the name of it. A Christian outreach ministry to Jewish people. He himself is a Jewish believer in Messiah. <clears throat> Excuse me. He tells about his own conversion of from Judaism to Christian faith, and, he, and he's telling his parents about it. He, he said it went just as poorly as he thought it might. His parents went ballistic. He was a young man who told me he had to move out of the house immediately. Had to make plan not that night, but he had to make plans. He couldn't live there anymore. They said, "Don't be bringing Christian literature in this house. You can't tell your you cannot tell your grandparents. You cannot tell your grandparents this thing you've done. No literature in here. No no New Testament. Don't be bringing a new. You're not to read New Testament in this house. You're not to have a New Testament in this house." I think his dad. I can't remember the story. I think his dad maybe stormed off, but he's left with his mom. He said, he asked his mom, he said, can I at least read to you what was persuasive to me? She agreed. He read to her Isaiah chapter 53. When he finished, he said, what do you think? His mother said, didn't we just tell you never to read the New Testament in this house. So, in other words, although it was unfamiliar to her, she heard it, and it was obvious it was about Jesus. It must be from the New Testament. It's got to be part of the New Testament. So back to Isaiah the man, the life he lived. laid the foundation of the New Testament, shaped the self-conception of Messiah himself, provided the most explicit, most powerful, apologetic, and evangelistic content of the entire Old Testament, probably. How's that for a life of significance? Meaning. But here's what Isaiah didn't know about Isaiah. He didn't know any of that would come to pass. I mean, he knew, he knew what he was prophesying. You know, he knew that he was prophesying about Messiah. He didn't know about anything called that might be called the New Testament. He didn't. He shows no awareness that the prophecies that he writes would shape the self-conception of Messiah himself. He didn't know that Isaiah 53 would be the John 3:16 of the you know of the early church. And what Isaiah Here's the, here's the punchline here. This, here's what makes it something more than just an academic interest. What Isaiah didn't know about Isaiah is what you don't know about you and what I don't know about me. We're in the same place. You know, there, there's more to unpack about Isaiah and his life and his ministry, his impact. But I want to wrap it up. To, you know, this is where you just kind of break it off. There's going to more to say about Isaiah whenever I get a chance to be here, right here again. But I want to, like, end with three applications that, that have a significance for your life and mine. The impact of a life given to God, the impact of a life given to God cannot be measured by the span of that life. 
It cannot be confined to the span of that life. You know, the, 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 uh, on the road to Emmaus, you know, they thought, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the believers, they thought, we, we'd hoped he was going to be the, we'd hoped he was going to be the one to deliver Israel. We hoped he was the Messiah. But now he's dead, so it's over. But it wasn't over, was it? I mean, you know, if this, just think of this statement here. The impact of a life given to God cannot be measured only by the years of life of that life and what happens in the years of that life. I mean, think of Jesus. Does, did Jesus did he just live 30, 31, 33 years old, whatever it was? Is, is, you know, he had impact for 33? No. Did he just have impact for three years? No. His ministry is four years? No. So it's obviously true, but look at, think of it in Isaiah. The, all, everything I've talked about today didn't happen for seven centuries after he was gone. And you know, you see inklings of it, you see inklings of it in this church or any church. I'll, I'll give you one, one example. Uh, how many people here are in your family are f you're the first generation Christian. You're the first one. How many? Me, a couple, yeah. In those places where, where, just think of how the trajectory of that family is changed. In the generations after that, and the generations after that, the generations after that. One of the things when we have our graduation Sundays here, almost to a person, I think of the young person standing there, they're 17, 18 years old. I think, wow, what a leg up they've got. <laughs> when I was 17 or 18, what a leg up they've got. Spiritually. So that the, the impact of a life, the significance of a life, uh, and, the, and of your life, cannot be confined to the, to the measure of your life. In years. Another, just another couple things. Discovery is not the key to living out that kind of life given to God. That has significance beyond the time of your presence here. Discovery is not the key to it. You know, the, and I say that because the Christian world is just a wash with this idea, it's in all kinds of books. Now, I won't mention them because some of them you might have liked and get a lot out of or something, you know, but, but the, the, the Christian world is awash with this idea that, you know, what you got to do is discover that great thing God wants you to do with your life. Discover what it is, and that way you can do it and accomplish it, pursue it. But you know, when I read the books, all it's all about the discovery. It's the it's not about the doing it, it's about the discovery. Find out what God is doing, what he has in mind for you, and it's going to be something great and it's going to be something awesome. And he'll tell you what it is. If you really want to know, he'll let you know somehow what he wants to accomplish, and then you can get after it. Well, you know, sometimes that's the way it is. Abraham knew everything before he went, right? Abraham had got the whole plan right up front. Go forth from your father's house. I'll, you know, the land, seed, blessing, you know, make you a great nation, give you this land, I'll show you, make you a great nation, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All the families are going to be blessed through your Moses knew ahead of time, right? Uh, it's not how it is. Isaiah had no clue. But what a life he lived. What significance. Others that have come up in recent weeks and other people's preaching here. Rahab, does she have any idea? Does she have any idea of the significance of her life? There's no, no sense that she did. She told she's going to be in the light of Messiah. She's going to be in the... Oh. The woman who put her two cents in. 
I'll end with this. Discovery is not the key to living that kind of life. What is? Ordinary faith, ordinary obedience is the key to living that life whose impact goes beyond the years of your life. Ordinary faith, ordinary obedience. Just being a believer. Growing in your faith, fighting the good fight, doing the right thing, not knowing the outcome. Not knowing what will come of it. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. You don't know what God will do with it. You don't know what God will do with it. You don't need to know what God will do with it, unless he tells you, unless he shows you. But its impact is not confined to the years of your life. And you can, you can uh, press on ahead in ordinary faith, in ordinary faithfulness, doing the right thing, working, doing, an honorable, doing the honorable thing, taking care of your family, being faithful, the routine of worship and rest and work and play and leave it with the Lord for him to make much of as he sees fit. Father, may it be so with everyone here. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.